It's a joy to be with you. I have so much to learn from you this weekend, and I trust that not only will our learning increase, but that the glory of God might be evident in everything we do. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come at Mission Road as it is in heaven. Your will be done in our lives. Give us this day the bread that we need. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil, the danger of losing sight of you and devoting ourselves to other gods. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's a joy to be with you, to share with you what God has been laying on our minds and hearts for the last decade or more, decade and a half now. Deeply honored to have been invited to come to Mission Road Bible Church to be with you, my new friends. We're gathered here to speak about a subject that has exercised and inspired me for almost two decades, ever since 1999 when I was encouraged by the dean at Southern Seminary to develop a course on a biblical theology of worship. I had no idea where that would take me. And every week as I tried to stay ahead of the students in the class, I was having wrestling matches with God as he was turning some of my thinking inside out. For the glory of God, recovering a biblical theology of worship. In 2001, I was flying to Kansas City every Sunday for 16 weeks to preach in a large church not far from here. They had three Sunday morning services. I shall never forget when at a transitional moment in the service, the music and worship pastor declared to the congregation, now before we continue our worship, let me read a passage from Colossians 3. Really? As if hearing the Scriptures is not an exercise in worship? This restricted notion of worship is common in our day, and it's reflected in the music stores, 
the labeling of CDs as praise and worship music, the specification in church bulletins of the period of singing as worship time, and the identification of musicians and the pastoral staff as worship ministers or ministers of worship, arts sometimes even. In fact, the worship industry, and I use that expression intentionally, tends to equate worship with music, but a particular kind of music, contemporary praise. Well, if that's the case, there's not actually much worship in the Psalms. Because for every praise psalm, there are two lament psalms. Is that worship? These practices raise all sorts of questions, not only about the significance of other aspects of the Sunday service, prayer, preaching, testimonials, but also about religious rituals in the Bible and the, and the Scripture's relatively minor emphasis on worship. Not only is music rarely associated with worship in the New Testament, have you ever looked? But the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they're altogether silent on music in tabernacle worship. Did they not worship? Of course, this highlights how skewed is our preoccupation with music and conflict over music in our debates about worship. But worship issues of the, evangelical, the, the worship issues the evangelical church faces at the beginning of our century are much deeper than differences in musical taste, which is only a symptom of a much bigger problem. In a recent book on worship, Edith Humphrey correctly identified five maladies that plague worship in North America. One, trivializing worship by preoccupation with atmospherics, creating a mood. Two, misdirecting worship with a man-centered, then God-centered focus. It's all about me, the worshiper. Three, deadening worship by substituting stones for bread, the loss of the Word of God. And four, perverting worship with emotional, self-indulgent experiences at the expenses of true, weighty liturgy. And finally, exploiting worship with market-driven values. The mark of a successful church is a full building. Have you read Ezekiel lately? Chapter 33? The whole town is coming to Ezekiel's house because they hear there's another word from God. But what does Ezekiel say? They come to you as if they were the people of God, and they listen to the prophet as if he's a crooner, a musician, a mood music guy. They love the sound of his voice, but they don't care one bit about what he says. 
Sometimes a full house is a sign that we're doing everything wrong. And we think it's all about filling the house. This raises an important question. What is worship? What is worship? Contemporary definitions almost always begin with the English word worship, generally understood to mean to ascribe worth to someone or something. This probably explains why the music industry in evangelical churches equates worship with praise because we want to say how great God is. That's worship. Praise, by definition, involves verbal expressions of worth for someone whom we admire or to whom we are indebted. The problem is that this, although this makes sense to us, that's what the English word may mean, it's irrelevant if you're trying to establish a biblical definition of worship because they didn't have that word. So what we need to do is look first at what kinds of words does the Bible use for worship? Through an exhaustive study of expressions associated with worship, I've concluded that it is a much bigger idea than music or praise. Now, in, uh, as I give my definition, you will understand it's not really a definition, but it's a description of a concept. There is no one Hebrew word for worship and no one Greek word for worship. And it will come as a surprise to you to discover that when you read worship in your translations, rarely does that have anything to do with what we call worship. It may come as a surprise. Both Hebrew hishtachawah, there's your word for the evening, and proskuneo in Greek bear a much more specific sense with, to which we will come, especially when we get to Psalm 95. Worship is about more than song. It is about more than physical gestures. It is about a disposition. It's about service. It's about life itself. Indeed, after looking at this concept exhaustively in the Scriptures, old and new, here is what I have concluded biblical worship looks like. True worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will. That's a weighty, heavy definition. It took me three years to figure that one out. And now I have to try and explain it in three days. Well, obviously, this is not so much a definition as a description of the phenomenon that involves all of life as worship. So let me give you a commentary on this definition. First, the Scriptures call for worship that is true as opposed to false. Everyone worships. The problem is that not everyone worships truly. 
those who direct their worship to, other, to gods other than the Lord revealed in Scripture, or who worship the living God in ways contrary to Scripture, worship falsely. Whether we interpret obedience before the Lord in everyday conduct as cultic, I'm going to be using that word quite a lot now. Don't think of false cults when I use the word cultic. Cultic has to do with anything we do formally when we gather for worship, liturgy, singing, preaching, praying, Lord's Supper. These are cultic observances. It has nothing to do with false cults. It has to do with formal expressions of worship, which is what we usually think of when we think of worship. Sunday morning is the time for worship, really. Only Sunday morning? We tend to think of it in those terms. Whether we interpret before the Lord in everyday conduct, either in our worship service or ethically, walking before God in faithfulness and in truth with our whole mind and whole being demands more than one hour of the week. It demands all of life. And that's why when I give you this full description, you will notice from that that I haven't limited to what we do on Sunday morning. True worship involves reverential human acts of submission. But we're talking about true as opposed to false worship. Second, true worship involves reverent awe. Did you notice that? Reverential human acts. Evangelical worship today often lacks the gravitas, seriousness, appropriate to the occasion, and the divine auditor, the one who's speaking. We'll have more to say about that later. He invites us to an audience with himself. In Israelite worship, the concern for reverence was expressed through the design of the tabernacle and the temple and the priest's attire. We're going to talk about all this on Sunday morning which was intended to promote glory and dignity and royal beauty. True worship need not be humorless, but it will never be casual or flippant. Third, true worship, I can't read the screen back there very well, but we'll try and keep you up with me. True worship, the, the, the true worship of which we speak is a Human response, human acts of, of devotion. The Scriptures inform us that angelic creatures worship God by their words and by their actions as messengers of God and agents of providence, Isaiah 6, and that the entire universe is involved in worshipful activity. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows His handiwork. I have an idea, that's worship. Creatures are worshiping God every time they do what creatures were designed to do. That's worship. Although the Scriptures envision the ultimate restoration of all of fallen creation, Romans 8, its words are intended for 
human beings and primarily concern human relationships with God. In our conversations in the next few days, our concern is not how the rest of God's creation glorifies God. Two weeks ago when our grandson was with us, we went to the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. I'd never been there before. It's spectacular. As whole universes are opened up to us, and the bigger the universe that Hubble Space Telescope discovers, the bigger my God. The universe worships God, glorifies Him. Our concern here is human worship. Fourth, true worship involves action. True worship is not primary, primarily interior, as if God is concerned only about what's in our hearts and not really interested in external ritual or even external actions. We hear that a lot these days. Don't accept me for what I do. Accept me for who I am. God doesn't look at what we do. He looks inside at our hearts. That's a kind of schizophrenia that the Bible will not tolerate. Many aspects of God remain a mystery to us, but biblical religion is not mystical. It is everyday life. There are those who talk about, who write books about worship is a verb. Unfortunately, in some of those books, the verb is, final, is, is, is largely about what we do in church, namely inspiring us to become actively involved rather than just passive witnesses to what's going on. But worship as a verb is far bigger than that. True worship involves actions that demonstrate covenant commitment to and love for God and that our daily lives are characterized by reverence and awe. Did you notice that in our definition? True worship involves reverential acts of homage and submission, not just in church, but in everyday life, all of life is worship. Fifth, true worship expresses the submission and homage of a person of lower rank before a superior. This word that is often translated worship with reference to God is often translated simply to fall down before or to bow before. Ruth worshiped Boaz. That's the word. What did she do? She fell down on her face before him. This is an expression of homage before a superior. But of course, in worship, worship with a capital W, we're not just expressing homage to our parents, to our authorities over us. We're expressing homage to God. That's worship. Only God deserves that kind of devotion, that kind of homage. When we worship God, 
We are not expressing equality. We're doing the opposite. We are declaring, I am not worthy to be in your presence, let alone to be called to relationship with you. True worship lets God be God on his terms, and we submit to him with reverence and awe. Sixth, while human subordinates may express their humility before human superiors by bowing and prostration, only the divine sovereign is worthy of actual worship. We've already mentioned that. In the New Testament, of course, it's not just God the Father. It is also God incarnate in Jesus Christ who is worthy of worship. It's interesting, if you do an actual study of this, you will, you, you will discover that in the New Testament, nobody worships the Spirit. I've done an exhaustive study. Every doxology, every prayer, every song, every conversation, nobody ever talks to the Spirit. Nobody praises the Spirit. Nobody prays to the Spirit. That was a shocker to me. How, how then do we submit to the Spirit who is God as much as the Son is and the Father is? My conclusion is that there are ways of doing that, but it's not necessarily by talking to the Spirit. I think it is by letting the Spirit do what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. That's worship. The Spirit is given to guide us into all truth, convict us of sin, and drive us to Christ. That's when we let Him do that, we are worshiping the Spirit. Eighth, worshipers, I don't know what number, I can't see what number we've got up there. Uh, for worshipers' acts of homage to be favorably received by God, their actions must align with His will rather than the impulses of depraved human imagination. Did you hear that? We have a lot of debate these days about how, should, how, we, should, how we should design our worship services. Deuteronomy 12 helps me a lot here. In Deuteronomy 12, let's go there. We're going to be jumping back and forth to a lot of texts in the next couple of days, so we might as well start off right. Deuteronomy 12. Some very interesting things. He's talking here about, to the Israelites about when they cross the Jordan, you shall utterly destroy all the altars, smash the pagan pillars, burn their Asherahs. You shall cut down their engraved images of the gods, obliterate their name from the place. You shall not treat God the Lord this way. But you may seek the Lord your God at the place he will establish. And there you may come, and there you may bring your offerings, and there you may eat and celebrate in his presence. And then look at ver verse 8. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, everyone doing what's right in his own eyes. you see that? Who decides what kind of worship is acceptable to God? Not we. 
It's the object of worship who decides. But then if we read on in verses 15 and following, he comes back and he talks about, uh, about if you want to make worship a part of life at home and you want to make your meals in everyday life worship, that's up to verse 27. But then look at verse 28. Be careful to listen to all the words that I command you so that you'll do what's right and good in the sight of God. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you're going to dispossess, before, uh, beware that you are not ensnared to follow after them, uh, to follow them after they are destroyed before you. And watch out that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? I'd like to do the same. Isn't that curious? In this one chapter, what kind of worship is ruled out? Everyone doing what's right in his own eyes, and secondly, going to the world to tell us how to do worship. Who decides what's right? God, the object of worship, is the only one. True worship pleases God, is according to His revealed will. Well, uh, there's a lot of food for thought right there. But let's look at a couple of pictures. I think I have them here to see how this works. I can't tell from the back what's happening here. Deuteronomy, turn to Deuteronomy 6. 4 and 5. We'll come back to this again and give it a little more uh, fuller treatment later, but this is worship. This is what we call the Shema. To this day, Orthodox Jews, when they get up in the morning, first thing they say is Shema Yisrael Yahweh Adonai Echad. They don't say Yahweh. They always say the Lord instead of but in any case, that's the first thing. Their first act of worship is reciting this mantra. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And by saying it, we've worshipped. Really. Look on to the next uh, verse. That Shema is not only that verse. It is verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words that I am commanding you shall be on your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We could talk an hour about what those three words mean. In, four, in fact, four words. What does love mean? To us, love is a nice, warm, emotional word. It's, it's a pink word. It's a Valentine's Day word. It's pink, foam. We've so romanticized it, or we've dirtied it by making it into a sex word. Not so in Scripture. In Scripture, love means... Covenant commitment demonstrated in action in the interest of the other person. Did you hear that? 
covenant commitment demonstrated in action in the interests of the other person. You know this from the New Testament. I do read the New Testament. It's wonderful stuff. John 3.16, one of my favorite verses. For God so loved the world that he sent roses. Really? Or God so loved the world that he wrote beautiful music. Or God so loved the world that he said, I love you. Really? Here's where the Holman Christian Standard Bible has the translation absolutely right. God demonstrated his love for the world in this, that he gave his only son. In the Bible, love is generally, in Deuteronomy, always an action word. In fact, Abraham Malamat says we should never translate it only with one English word, the Hebrew word, I have. It is demonstrated love, always action, love and obey, love and serve, love and walk in his ways, love and feed the poor. It's always that way. Now, when we look at this Shema this way, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, which is the inner being, that's the first dimension. Uh, we're going the wrong way here. This word means both heart and mind, which is why when Jesus is asked in the New Testament, what's the great command? Is it Mark 13? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. How many words? Four. But the verse he's quoting has only three. Jesus is an NLT kind of translator <laughs> because he knows that if you translate that Hebrew word lave only with heart, you'll miss half of it because 50% of the time in the Old Testament, it means your thinker. Out of the heart proceed the thoughts. Really? Hebrew has no word for brain, separate word for brain. Now, when you get to the New Testament, there you have it. So what Jesus does here in quoting this, he uses both heart and mind. It's your inner being, the seat of will, the seat of thought. From the inside out, you shall love the Lord with, a, that's what I call dispositional worship. Your attitude is totally transformed and submissive in submission and homage before God. Then you have, whoops, I'm going the wrong way. Then you have the second. These are concentric circles. The inside and then your nephesh. This is always translated as soul, which is not really helpful because when we think of soul, we think it's the non-physical you. In actual fact, this word is occasionally used in the Old Testament of the corpse after the spirit has left, the nephesh. God breathed into a piece of dirt his breath, and it, become a, it became a living nephesh. It means person, being. In this context, I think it means your whole body. 
You shall love the Lord your God with your inside, your dispositions, with your whole person. And then the, the next one, this one is really trouble. Gestural worship with your body. Demonstrate love for God. The next one, with all your ma'od, that's the Hebrew word. We're learning all kinds of Hebrew tonight. But if I want to translate this literally, it's you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, with all your being, and with all your very. Now, that makes no sense at all. Everywhere else in Scripture, this word always means very. Tomorrow morning, we'll come back together, and I'll say, Bokotov, good morning. And you will reply, Bokotov ma'od, very good morning. That's what the word means, very, very good. It was very big, very large. He ran very fast. It's always very, always adverb. But this can't be an adverb. You can love the Lord your God with all your very. Well, then what does it mean? There are a couple of texts outside the Bible in cousin languages where this same root is used of your property, your goods, your stuff. Oh, really? Now it makes sense. You see the three concentric circles. You shall love the Lord your God with all your inner being, with all your person, your body, and with everything that belongs to you. You know what that means? That means my computer is dedicated to God. It means my house, my car, my dog, my cat. Nothing left over for any other God. This is total worship. Life worship. We'll have more to say about this uh, uh, later on tonight. If you want to see how full-bodied and whole-hearted worship is, here you got a picture of it. Three dimensions of worship I have here. Does this thing point? It, I'm not getting it. But notice, worship involves life, cultic service. Remember how I'm using the word? In another context, it'll mean something else. But here, I've defined it. So, think with me, cultic, liturgic, what we do in church. And then, disposition, it's who I am on the inside. We should actually have it going the other way so that the disposition, I'm reading Hebrew. Hebrew is always right to left. That's the way we'll all read when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. We'll all finally read the right direction, disposition, life, and then cultic service. We tend to think of worship only at that middle section. But even if you think of it only as the middle section, notice it involves all the blue, the light blue stuff, hearing the Word of God, verbal response, active response. And that's reading Scripture, preaching, testimony, prayer, song, sacrifice, service, ordinances, lament, but it's also life at home, at school, at play, at work, and it is our attitude. When we think about worship, I don't know about you, but I didn't come here 
to talk to you only about what we do in church. That's what we fight about. We come to talk about life. Worship is life. In the Scriptures, it involves a dispossession. You shall read this Torah that they may hear, that they may learn, that they may fear. There it is. Which is odd trust, not O-D-D, but A-W-E-D, or trusting awe. That's the attitude. You can't worship rightly without that. That they may fear the Lord their God, that they may walk in His ways, that they may live, and that becomes the Lord's reward and blessing for worship. What is worship? Worship is Romans 12, 1. You thought that was in the New Testament. You know, we've, I've often been told, you know, in the Old Testament, people worshipped by bringing their goats and their flour and their sacrifices. In the New Testament, we, be, we worship by sacrificing ourselves. Well, I've got news for you. That's not new in the New Testament. That's Deuteronomy 6. 4 and 5. I beseech you, brothers, therefore by the mercies of God, that you present your whole being as a living sacrifice, which is your... The new translations all go spiritual act of worship. But there's a clear echo in the Greek there of, of, of Deuteronomy 10, 12, which has, which is your reasonable service, which means all of life, all of life. And that's what biblical worship is. So now, as we start talking about worship, keep all of this in mind. We're not talking only about what we do in this building or what we're doing at home in our family devotions. To us, that's worship. No, worship is everything. Worship is getting up in the morning. Worship is eating my breakfast. Worship is driving to work, the work that I do, coming home, that my time with the family, everything. All of life is worship. So whatever we have to say about worship from here on, I remind you that when tomorrow morning we start talking about, well, what do we do in church? That's only part of life as worship. Let's break for a few minutes, and then we'll come back and talk about who is this God we worship.